Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Here's something about our recent asylum seekers that you might not know. While the vast majority of the recent arrivals, somewhere around 85%, according to The New Yorker, are from Latin American countries, a growing number are coming from African nations flying to Central America and then traveling through the southern border into the United States. This is in part due to the crackdown on migration in Europe. On December 20th, the European Union signed a pact to facilitate the deportation of asylum seekers and limit migration to the EU bloc. Many far-right politicians in various countries there are also running and winning on the promise to curb migration. Here in the U.S., the number of African asylum seekers apprehended at the southern border jumped from around 13,000 in 2022 to over 58,000 last year, according to the New York Times. The majority of those migrants from, were from Mauritania, Senegal, Angola, and Guinea. Joining me now to discuss these trends and the special needs of African migrants and how his organization is responding to meet them is Amaha Kasa, founder and executive director of African Communities Together, which is a national group supporting African immigrants. We're the headquarters in Harlem. They're also in D.C. and Philadelphia. Amaha, thanks so much for coming on with us. Welcome to WNYC. Good morning, Brian. Very glad to be with you. And before we dig into some of this recent news and invite callers in, can you first tell us a bit more about your organization, African Communities Together, and what you do? Sure. Uh, So our organization, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. um, And as you said, we are a national organization uh, uh, of by and for immigrants from Africa and their families. Um, We do a lot of different things, including uh, a lot of direct service provision. Um, Most of that is immigration legal, but we help uh, people with a whole range of urgent uh, needs. and we also are a membership-based organization. We run leadership programs, and we're an advocate as well. Um, uh, in the courts, in uh, state and federal uh, government, we uh, advocate on policy issues that affect our communities. So last summer, as many of our listeners know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott started sending busloads of migrants to New York City. Can you tell us a bit about what your organization saw at the beginning of that and how it's been changing over the months. Absolutely. So over the months that uh, that uh, kind of secondary migration uh, from um, uh, border states, particularly Texas, um, uh, has been coming to New York, um, we have just been steadily uh, overwhelmed, to be frank, um, by the number of community members seeking assistance. Um, uh, you know, we are currently get, uh, getting over uh, 250 um, 
prim primarily African. We serve, um, you know, uh, uh, lots of different, uh, you know, uh, countries of origin. Um, so we get people, of course, uh, also coming in from Central America or um, uh, 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 the Middle East or other countries. Um, but the vast majority of people who find us and who need assistance from our uh, team are uh, West African migrants. So we're seeing people coming from uh, Guinea. Uh, Mauritania has been a big, um, there's been a big influx of folks coming from Mauritania, uh, Burkina Faso, other parts of West Africa. Um, and it's, we've always, uh, you know, historically, most people who were coming to us were long-term New Yorkers um, and, you know, uh, uh, had been living in New York for some time and, and heard about us through word of mouth. Um, like a lot of other immigrant-serving organizations, um, we have had to shift drastically to meet the needs of these, you know, kind of newest New Yorkers. Yeah. Now, let me invite listeners who may be among those new arrivals from Africa or may know anybody who is to call in or even anyone else from especially those four countries um, who've been getting named as, you know, the, the senders of most of the recent African migrants coming through the southern border after they get to this hemisphere. And so, listeners, if you are from or connected to Mauritania, Senegal, Angola, or Guinea, you're going to get first priority on the phones now. Help us report this story of why people are making that incredibly perilous uh, and and difficult journey um, going from any of those countries first to Central America and then making that that perilous trip uh, that so many Central Americans make somehow walking or however they go up to the United States and coming in and then 58,000 in the last year into New York City after that, 212-433-WNYC. We invite your stories. We invite stories of people you know. We invite your questions. We invite your take on what's going on in the home countries to drive so many people to take these risks, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call or text for Amaha Kasa, founder and executive director of African Communities Together, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. And Amaha, if that number in the New York Times is right, 58,000 new such arrivals in 2023. That's more than a thousand people a week. Is that what you're seeing at African Communities Together? Uh, well, we're we're seeing uh, uh, that that number. Us and the other organizations. There's there's a lot of other organizations that are really valiantly um, trying to respond uh, to the needs of of these new African arrivals. Um, we're one of the largest, but there's other. You know, uh, uh, a group called Africana that's been doing incredible work on the front lines, uh, meeting the buses. Um, African Services Committee, uh, other groups that have been um, 
uh, kind of uh, first responders, uh, but a lot of the, those folks have come to us and it really has been an order of magnitude more than anything we've seen in the previous, you know, eight or nine years, um, including even during COVID, right, when we had a lot of people who were in need of emergent services because, you know, businesses were closed, uh, you know, uh, uh, public accommodations were closed. Um, so this, you know, we were uh, at one level trying to do rapid response during COVID and have had to kind of level up uh, again um, to meet this, uh, this, you know, the, the, the current influx of folks. Um, often with, you know, just a, a delayed and, and really insufficient um, level of response from certainly from the federal government, but um, you know, really, there's been a lot, been a lot, been gaps at the state and local level as well. I wonder if you could help give our listeners kind of a short course on what's going on in some of these countries, driving so many people to take this desperate act. Um, Mauritania, Northwest Africa, Seneca, Senegal is right there. Guinea is right nearby. Angola is further south. But, you know, most New Yorkers without connections to the region hardly hear anything about Mauritania. What the heck is happening in Mauritania that they're driving so many people to do this? Yeah, well, there's this, um, you know, the, there's a, a poem that people may have encountered, which says nobody uh, by Warsan Shire that says nobody leaves home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. Um, and mm. I think that's really true, right? A lot of African migration um, you know, people are migrating because they don't have uh, great options to, you know, to remain. Um, and so in some cases, we're talking about countries that have um, experienced um, uh, uh, political violence, um, you know, war, conflict, inter-ethnic violence, uh, the, you know, those kind of forces that are driving people um, a lot of times with Mauritania in particular, um, it's because people are members of a group that is uh, discriminated against or persecuted in their country of origin. Um, uh, you know, you're you're seeing people who, um, uh, you know, are considered to be black Mauritanians and who often experience um uh racism up to and including forced labor and slavery and there's you know well documented uh kind of human rights um uh uh reports on this uh in Mauritania which is why we've been urging the federal government to extend um temporary protected status humanitarian protection to Mauritania um but so far you know that's not uh something that uh -huh. the federal government has done um you see so other that's places more like yeah. more Arabic, ethnically Arabic people persecuting more ethnically black African. Am I putting that right? Uh, effectively, yes. Yeah. I, some, sometimes the categories don't always map onto how we in the U.S. understand ethnicity. But yes, uh, certainly people who, you know, uh, uh, we, we would identify as black are, are on the receiving end of, of that persecution. But yeah. Let's take a call from a listener who wants to say something about Guinea. Namina in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Namina. Hi, good morning, Brian. Happy New Year to you and your staff and your wonderful um, guests. Thank you, sir, for this topic. It's so needed to talk about. My, I'm, from, I'm originally from Freetown, Sierra Leone, West Africa. My mother is, and my father, my father is Guinean. 
And if you just said something about, you know, your, they will kill them because of their religion or just because they're black. And the last president that was in Guinea, that's what he was doing. He just killed. If you are dark and you're Muslim, you just kill. You can't read it. And, and people were just running away. Children, mothers were killed. And people were just running away. And they're following their rainbow where they could go. Sometimes nobody wants to leave their, their, their homeland. But just like you said, they kill them for no reason. And they were running away to save their life. And they just go. They just follow their rainbow wherever they go. If even they deport them, they will still come back and just stay running away for their lives. You don't know what to do. Remember when the blood diamond happened in Sierra Leone? That's what, that's what most of our family, everybody was just running away. Uh-huh. They're just killing them. If you're a different tribe, they kill you. If you're black Muslim, they just kill you, your own. And that's what's going on. I thank you so much for this topic. I wish the news was there. That was there. I was telling the, the young lady that answered the phone, and I said, when you go into the villages, you see it. Not in the cities, but when you go into Guinea, the village, you see the atrocities. And, but the, the, the news is not there. The media is not there. You know, so I'm, I'm so grateful and thankful that, thank that you, your guest Namina. had thank this you. conversation. And thank you for thank amplifying you. Yeah, it. Thank and you, and I actually well want said. to take another caller with ties to Guinea. Uh, who I think is going to say they're working with some recent asylum seekers, Mamadou in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hello, Mamadou. Hi, Brian. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you very much. Tell us your story. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I'm from Guinea, and uh, I've been working with some of the um, asylum seekers from Guinea, especially in my community. So um, when I realized they were coming... Uh, like six, seven months ago, and we did not have any, like, organizations or group, um, like, to help them out or to advise them on anything. I came up with an idea of creating a WhatsApp group chat, and uh, we told my friends, we called it Wallami Walle, which means in Fulani, like, help me, I help you. And um, so basically what we've done in that group is, like, to share information, to advise them, what they should be aware of, you know, and uh, help them out with getting um, New York City IDs or sharing information where they should go for ESL classes. Um, it helped them a lot, and uh, we've had now an office where we, you know, taking some of them to help them out with Medicaid or New York City ID applications. Um, but um, we still need more resources, bro. I just want to emphasize um, helping out these immigrants is highly recommended by everyone. There is much more we can do individually or within your group. Mabadou, thank you very much. And uh, I'll follow up on that with you in a minute, um, um, Amaha, about, about things that are needed. But I want to go next to Emily in Manhattan who I think says she's a doctor in an emergency room in the Bronx, seeing more people from West Africa. Emily, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, hi. Um, Yeah, like you said, I'm a doctor in the South Bronx, and I work in the emergency department. And we've also had quite an increase of people from West Africa coming into the department um, over the last, like, year or so, um, which presents, like, a new kind of widespread variety of challenges because a lot of these people are coming up, as you said, through South America um, but in addition to that, they're also bringing, like, it's a whole underreported thing, as you've been saying, because we hear a lot about the migrants from South America, and we see a lot of those migrants as well. But we do see a big proportion of West Africans come in, and 
especially as an emergency provider, it's a very interesting thing to happen because we get all these people who speak all these different varieties of languages. And just in terms of um, how we treat these people, we have a hard time communicating with them sometimes because there's all these people coming in from like tribal languages that we can't even communicate with them anymore. Um, so it is, we've seen this just in the emergency department on the ground and it's a, uh, it is something that is happening and is underreported. I'm, and under I'm, kind of, I, I'm glad you're helping yeah. us amplify it. I'm curious if, besides communicating with whoever's coming in to treat their ER medical needs, if you're hearing any stories of why they fled their countries. Um, not so much. A lot of it is, as you were saying, like religious persecution or ethnic persecution that has caused them, and a lot of them have come up through um, South America, as you see, so we see this really interesting demographic where these people come in and sometimes they speak a bit of Spanish, sometimes they speak a little French, but I find it very interesting because they are coming up through South America, as you said. Mm -hmm. And along with that, it's um, the hospital which I worked at, interestingly, is the um, largest, like we treat the most malaria out of anyone, any hospital in the United States because people huh. do come in and then they seek medical attention and it's not like they're getting malaria here in the U.S., but... Um, they're, coming, they're coming here with malaria and it's, you know, it is a sad thing to see and, you know, they've been undertreated or not treated at all because they've been trying to migrate up um, from South America or just from other West African countries. Emily, thank you so much for your work and for your call. Um, and interesting that she talks about language Amaha, and the previous caller, Mamadou from Guinea, uh, was describing how one of the services they're trying to provide is English as a second language classes. Uh, language, it's impossible to overstate how important that need is, right? Africa is one of the most, is the, if the most linguistically diverse place in the world. There are literally uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of um, of African languages. Um, and for the most part, uh, up until recently, even basic uh, access to French and Arabic was often missing um, in public, you know, in, in public services and publicly funded services, um, you know, language ser services would provide Spanish and, you know, maybe a couple of Asian languages and call it a day. Um, and as the, you know, the doctors was saying, it's, it's, that's really insufficient. Um, and there's good news and bad news. I think that we've started to meet the meet the demand for language services. We actually helped launch a language services worker cooperative called Afrilingual, um, which is a kind of worker-owned um, agency providing language services. That's terrific news. Um, unfortunately, um, we had the city council allocated $5 million to expand language services and the Adams administration uh, cut that funding in the most recent city budget. Um, hmm. So unfortunately, during a time when we, we need to be growing language services, we're seeing some moves backwards. That's a paradox, right? The city says it has to cut services because it's spending so much money on migrants, but some of those cuts are to organizations like yours that serve the migrants. Exactly. And and help them um, move into self-sufficiency, help them, you know, ultimately these are cost savings that we can realize by um, getting people uh, legal status, getting people help with their employment applications, get helping them, you know, move into stable housing, all of that. Here's a caller 
from another of the four countries that a lot of people are coming from now, Elijah in Manhattan, who told our screener he's Senegalese. Elijah, you're on WNYC. Thank you so much for calling in. Thank you, Brian, and thank you for your guests. Um, I just wanted to ask one question, how we can help other Senegalese. Um, we've been here for a while, and I'm seeing my brothers and sisters struggling on the street. They don't have no place to stay. Uh, they stay in these mosques, you know, I mean, hundreds, two hundreds of them. Pretty sure they don't have no place to take shower. They're here for four months, five months, nothing, nothing. they picking a battle on the street. How, what advice would you give us, guys, that, you know, we can, we can have access to it to help them? Because it's so sad. It's so sad. They're here already. Um, it's going to take them time to integrate. So we need advice what we can do, where we can get access to help them. Because I know it's overwhelming. Suddenly, you know, thousands of them come and uh, they knew in this country, struggle to communicate, you know. So it's, it's overwhelming to our community too. So I'm sitting here and, and helpless. You, you don't know what to do. Helpless, but also I hear your beautiful heart in trying to help people. Amaha, any advice for Elijah as he's asking for, or advice to the listeners um, as a whole on how they can help if they want to help? Because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering that. Yeah, I, I think what Elijah said and what Mamadou said earlier is is so true. A lot of the people who are getting help right now, it's 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 not even you know agencies like ours or or the 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 city or these things. A lot of the help is coming from these frontline mosques, churches that are where where right now they're putting people up on floors. Um, you know, we've tried to uh, uh, you know sort of support some of those. Um, uh, folks who are housing people informally, and the community really has been heroic in re its response to arriving community members, um, particularly these where we ha already have a lot of uh, people in New York, like the Senegalese community, the Gu Guinean community. Um, I think we need to demand action from the city, uh, and the city also needs to demand more leadership from the state and federal government. Um, you know, I think uh, if this were taking place at the southern border, I think we would be seeing billions of dollars from FEMA uh, to provide, uh, you know, uh, short-term housing. And because it's happening in New York, um, you know, I think the federal government has been able to kind of wash its hands uh, of the situation. You know, we haven't filed the lawsuit against the federal government the way that I think you would you might see uh, a more hostile, you know, uh, you know, mayor or governor yeah. do. Um, and um, so I think we need that. And I think we need both short term solutions like vouchers um, to get people into housing. Um, and I think we need long term solutions like your last segment was talking about the, you know, the structural crisis of affordable housing. Yes. We need to be converting hotels and office space into uh, affordable housing. Um, private charity can help. Um, we've been able to get people into some short-term um, uh, transitional housing thanks to a grant from uh, Airbnb, um, but those things are just a, a drop in the bucket compared to the scale of the need. Um, people need housing until they can get on their feet. The work authorizations are taking too long. Um, and when people have, if people have that, 
um, they can become self-sufficient like, you know, tens of millions of immigrant New Yorkers have before them. Before you go, can you just give us a little bit more of a sort of political geography lesson? These four countries who are the big four African countries uh, from where so many of the migrants to New York are coming, and it still uh, blows my mind to think that they're flying to Central America and making that treacherous journey uh, up through Mexico and all of that and crossing the border and then winding up in New York and 58,000 people have done that in the last year, according to the New York Times, um, from these four countries. And for people who don't know the map, you know, one more time, just going from south to north this time, they're all on the west coast of Africa, Angola, then up through Guinea, Senegal, and Mauritania, the most north of the four. But there are other countries in Africa where there are also desperate situations. Sudan is in the news. Congo is in the news. Um, you know, others. It, it, is, it, is it a matter of geography that even though they're an ocean away, these, are the four, these countries are the closest to the, to the Americas because they're on the west coast of Africa? Is that why it's these countries and it's not Sudan, which is in crisis, or elsewhere? Yeah, and I would say, I, I know that uh, Angola has been a big sending country. We've actually, uh, in terms of our communities, we're actually seeing more also from Burkina Faso. Um, uh, there's a big Burkinabe uh, community. Um, and uh, I would say- Also uh, in West Africa, though not on the mm -hmm. water, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think most people, it's-, it's um, uh, I think that it's complicated. There's, you know, in migration, you talk about push factors and pull factors. Um, you know, when, um, uh, you know, when there are short-term crises, sometimes it's actually places where you have, um, you know, pe uh, folks, sometimes the most vulnerable people don't make the crossing, right? Like, uh, it takes a lot of um, you know, sort of initiative and a, maybe a little bit of money to buy a plane ticket to make these crossings. So sometimes it's people, a combination of uh, desperation and a, an ability to move. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it, you know, network effects, right, where people you know are leaving and you right. start to look around. Because there the are communities, possibilities. immigrant yeah. communities from those places here. That's a great exactly. point as is the point you were just making before that, which we actually did part of a segment on just recently, how it is not the poorest people um, who are the immigrants from anywhere to er anywhere, generally, because it takes some resources to migrate at all. But there we leave it with Amaha Kasa, founder and executive director of African Communities Together. Now, listeners, you know something that many of you may not have known about our recent asylum seekers, that... 58,000 of them in 2023, according to stats published in the New York Times, came not from Latin America or the Caribbean, but from Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. 
Later this hour, we will end today's show. You know, we often end with a call-in about things going on in our lives one way or the other. Today, it's going to be a call-in about how you're managing your streaming service budget because as more people cut the cord from cable or even add to cable uh, because you want to see things that are on Netflix or you want to see things that are on Hulu or whatever it is, um, the price structures, the features keep changing. Are you better off? And when everything was all bundled together and you had to have these wires running through your house. Uh, So we're going to talk about how you're managing your streaming service budget and watching time coming up later this hour. Now we'll talk about CUNY and public colleges generally through the lens of one of CUNY's longest serving and by many accounts most creative leaders. He is John Mogulescu now retired after nearly 50 years in teaching and leadership roles at CUNY. His reputation is very much that of an innovator who has tried to keep the system in touch with the needs of the New Yorkers who might attend in each generation. He is said to have created 22 new degree programs, and so it's no accident that the memoir he has just published is called The Dean of New Things, The Dean of New Things, subtitled Bringing Change to CUNY and New York City. Technically, he's now the Dean Emeritus of the School of Professional Studies at CUNY. Dean Mogulescu, congratulations on your career and on your book release. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much, Brian. That's a great introduction. Delighted to be on the show. Let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I'm a Brooklyn kid. I grew up in Flatbush. Uh, I spent my whole life in Brooklyn other than going to college, uh, uh, and my life revolved around uh, sports. I was a good athlete. Uh, My parents and brother, uh, who were, my parents were kind of radicals. Uh, My father had come up from the South, believing in in both civil rights, social justice, anti-fascism, and I guess I was a red diaper baby. Huh. Um, Talk more about that. Uh, your your parents as radicals and how that influenced your early thinking. Ah, so uh, just just quickly, uh, uh, my father was a businessman. So, you know, he obviously, and he was a successful uh, businessman. My mother was a housewife, but got very involved with with things like Women's Strike for Peace. And, and the evening conversation around the de- dinner table was often about politics uh, and, you know, my parents were part of a Brooklyn community of people who were trying to get peace in the world, get along with the Soviet Union at the, at, at the time. Uh, we, we would have almost, you know, monthly forms uh, in which a guy by a very distinguished professor by the name of Jack Foner would come to our house and, and give lectures hmm. and kind of influenced my thinking to a degree of, about the world. But your father was a business owner, so he was sort of a capitalist and a socialist? That, that is exactly right. <laughs> you got it right. We laugh about that, my brother and I and my family today. But yes, that is exactly, he was more of a theoretician. My mother was the activist. Where did you go to college? I went to Brown. Uh, I, I, I was not the greatest of students, but I was a really good athlete, and I was a recruited athlete. And we're not going to get into that in terms of, of what kind of advantage that is. But I was a tennis player and a basketball player in New York, ultimately became the captain of the Brown tennis team, only played a year of basketball. But I went to Brown and then came back to New York. What was your major? Psychology. How did you get interested in working in higher ed? Uh, it was by accident. Uh, I, I, uh, when I first got out of, of Brown, 
the Vietnam War was raging, and I, I got a deferment by teaching elementary school in a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn. Hardest huh. thing I ever did. Uh, uh, just pushed me to the limits. I enjoyed the kids, but I didn't know what I was doing. After three years of teaching, uh, I went back to graduate school in social work, and, and, and I was a community organizer major, which very few social work graduate schools even have at the, at the moment. And my field placement was placed at New, put me at New York City Community College, which was a community college at CUNY. Uh, and I walked in the door to meet my supervisor, didn't know what a community college was. I kind of had gone to a, an elite college. I knew Brooklyn College because I went to Midwood High School, which was next door, but I didn't know CUNY. And uh, an hour later, I came out and my life had been changed. The, the woman's name was Fanny Eisenstein. She was a brilliant committed person who believed that that non-credit programs could change lives. And she said, your field placement as a graduate student in social work was to go into the Brooklyn House of Detention, which was a jail of 2,000 men on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, and organize its first prison education program. And I, I did that for three years. The first year as a student, I then wrote a grant, got the grant application, uh, and we miraculously were uh, approved by the state ed department. And I stayed there for three years in that jail every day. So now I'm going from the public schools uh, to the jail, all black and brown uh, uh, inmates and detainees basically waiting for their trial. And this, this framed my whole career, both of those, those early starts. So you would say they taught you at least as much as you taught them? Without question, Brian. And, and, and the kids uh, in sixth grade, uh, for sure, and the detainees as, as well. And I learned a lot, and I learned a lot about myself and what I wanted to do with my career. It's interesting, I guess, just as a, a side thought about the era of the draft during the Vietnam War. You could get out of the draft by... Uh, faking an infirmity like Donald Trump or by going to work in an inner city public school like you? I guess that's correct. Yes. And, and I, I chose the, the, uh, the inner city school, but, but uh, that's another story. Uh, you said New York City Community College. Is that, is, is that what is now Manhattan, Borough of Manhattan Community no, College? No, it is now New York City College of Technology. It's and located in downtown Brooklyn. It's one of CUNY's now. Uh, it offers both associate and, and four-year degrees. And in 1976, during the fiscal crisis, it changed from a community college to a state-funded, you know, what would you we'd call a senior college at CUNY. Um, can you talk about the importance of community colleges yeah, as you question. see them today and as you've seen them change during the course of your career? So much of my career has been related to community college education. I've spent 13 years at that campus uh, of New York City Community and then, and, and, and then City Tech. Um, community colleges does a whole lot of uh, things. I mean, and CUNY has seven of them. Uh, the, and actually, I founded one of them. I, was the, I put the team together to found one of them called Gutman Community College. But it takes students who do not have the best academic record coming out of high school, but have a high school diploma or an equivalency, and provide them with opportunity 
to either major in a a you know a, a career related field like a nursing or or a rad tech or 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 hotel and restaurant or liberal arts as as a pathway to a transfer degree uh, in a baccalaureate as as, as well. Uh, they're incredibly important, um, and in in my work, and I started in continuing education, which was the non credit side of the house. Uh, but as I, you know, kind of gained status at the university, I moved to the central office of the university in 1986. We were an office of six people in continuing education, but we began to build programs and we began to question why was it that so many community college students did not do as well as we would like them to do? And, uh, and, and so what, framed a lot of my work, and this this were already, I'm really up to now 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. 2002, after being involved with literacy education, high school equivalency, workforce development. Um, we had a new chancellor come in, Matthew Goldstein. He was a visionary. In, in, he came in in 1999. There had been a very critical report of CUNY by Rudy Giuliani called An Institution Adrift. And Goldstein had a vision, and one of the things that he had was to enhance what we were doing in, at community colleges. And if I could give one quick example, because it Please. turns out to be the most successful community college program, uh, both at CUNY and also in the United States, in um, oh, 2004, 2005, maybe a little bit later, uh, Chancellor Goldstein went to see uh, Mayor Bloomberg. And uh, uh, it might even have been a bit earlier than that. And, and he said that the graduation rates uh, at uh, our community colleges are unconscionably low. Uh, urban community college graduation rates were 14, 15%. That's a three-year graduation rate for a, uh, a two-year degree. Mm -hmm. And CUNY was in that ballpark as well. And he said to the mayor, he said, if you give me some money, we can we can change that. And the mayor said, well, but what are you going to do? And he got he gave the mayor the answer. He came back to campus and he called me in already at that time. I was part of his senior team. Uh, and uh, he said, I just got 19 million dollars to put a pilot program together to change the graduation rates at, at community colleges. And then he said, but the, the, the bad part is that that I promised the mayor a 50% three-year graduation rate. And we were in, we were in the, the low teens at, 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 at the time. And we put a group of people together, and I guess this goes to the Dean of New Things, and, and they were not necessarily the traditional folks. And, and, and we, we used common sense. We, 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 we looked at, at, at uh, why students were not succeeding, and we said, well, for the most part, you're gonna have to go full-time. And people criticized us that we we were not aware of our students work and they're poor and they're 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 on public have assistance. Kids. I'm sorry. Some have kids and some have kids, all which was true and absolutely. But when we looked at the data, 89 percent of the students at that time who started community colleges started full time. And those that that ultimately then went to part time and took three credits or six credits rarely got to the finish line. We then did a lot of other things and we had got money uh, for the project. We started with a pilot program of 1,100 students, 
we, we uh, uh, you know, gave them Metro cards. We filled financial gaps. We kind of put them in cohorts from the beginning. Uh, we, we had what we call intrusive advisement. If someone didn't come to class, we wanted to know why, and we tried. And we were accused of actually by some folks of treating them like high school students. Um, and we measured everything from day one. And three years later, we had about a 53% graduation rate. Wow, uh, you went up uh, from low teens to 53%. Now, this was a, now the, the first cohort, and I will be honest, we selected people who did not read, need remediation. And so the the control group was probably in the 20s, and we got 53. Um, but we then loosened that as we went on. So then we got money from outside sources, uh, from from uh, places like the, the the Robin Hood Foundation and and others to expand to 4,000. And then Mayor De Blasio comes in. Now this is later, and we're at 4,000 students. And every time a new mayor comes in, CUNY gives a laundry list of things we, we would like funded, almost rarely, rarely are many of them funded, but you still do it. And he threw everything out and gave us $77 million into our operating budget to expand that one program, ASAP, to 25,000 students. And we have now done that. It took about you know eight or nine years from that time to do that. And we're a little below 50%, taking pretty much all folks uh, in, and and have changed the way you think about community college education. Long-winded answer, Brian, perhaps, but really important. And then Goldstein, almost at the same time, a year later, came to, to me as well and said that, you know, we also need a new experimental community college. And he, I put a team together, and we had this incredible group of educators, some faculty, but many from the, the days of our, our uh, literacy and GED programs. And we spent a lot of time in taking a look at what a new college would look like. Fast forward, that new college is now called Gutman Community College. We got money from the, uh, the Gutman Foundation to, mm -hmm. to, to, to name it and equally terrific results with a, a bit of a different kind of sense of approaching community college education. Now, all this is a long way of saying that what you said about having kids and work and, and being poor and, and relatively underprepared is all true, but at the, at the same time, we, and a lot of the blame, we would always put some folks from CUNY on the public school system, and we worked, one of the things I did at CUNY was oversee the work at, at the public schools. And we wanted to look at ourselves and see what we could do different. And so, you know, fast forward, I think, you know, the, the graduation rate is still not what we would like it to be, which is another reason, and we can get to why we have to bring students back to CUNY who have some credit but no degree. But it really, and it's been now duplicated in 11, in, in uh, 10 states, and SUNY is just putting it at, at uh, in, is going to put that, sa that same program in 23, I think 23 of its campuses. The person wow. who ran it for me is, is now uh, the senior vice chancellor for student success at, at, at SUNY. She left CUNY a little bit. Yeah, so that would be in almost two dozen locations all around the state. Where's the Gutman Community College, by the it's, way? It's right, at, right across from uh, Bryant Park. It's on 40th uh -huh. Street. It's a small college of about a thousand students. We had hoped it was going to be larger. You know, budget problems got in the way and finding space. 
but it's a small uh, kind of niche community college. And then you had mentioned uh, a borough of Manhattan Community College, which is the largest community college, which is in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, I'm sorry, Down lower, lower Manhattan. Manhattan. Did I say? Yeah, yeah, near the cool. World Trade Center and around there. Uh, listeners, anybody recognize the voice? Anybody who had Mr. Mogulescu <laughs> when you were in sixth grade uh, a million years ago or at um, one branch of CUNY or another or knew Dean Mogulescu and wants to either thank him or tell a story or ask a question or, of course, I'm sure we have many CUNY students and faculty members listening right now, as well as CUNY alum of, of many kinds and you know many of the CUNY campuses uh, want to talk about the issues which he's raising and fo- focusing on his book and his memoir uh, that really, as you've heard from what has been the heart of our conversation so far over the last few minutes, um, the challenge for any society and New York taking it on more than many of trying to get a college degree and a leg up in the economy for as many first generation, I think we can say in most um, cases, college students and people who come from marginalized backgrounds, low income backgrounds, immigrant backgrounds of any kind as possible. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. John Mogulescu's new book is called The Dean of New Things, Bringing Change to CUNY and New York City. Call or text 212-433-9692. And Jim and Astoria, you're on WNYC. Hello, Jim. Hi, Brian. How are you? Uh, First, Dean Mogulescu, thank you so much. Um, I'm a CUNY alum. I, uh, I did my first two years at LaGuardia Community College and used the 2 plus 2 program to transfer over to the Grove School of Engineering at City College. Uh, and really, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have graduated college if it weren't for that program. The small class sizes really paid off. Uh, now I'm a licensed professional engineer. I practice in New York, most of the Northeast, and in Puerto Rico. But without that program, I wouldn't have my career today. Well, congratulations on that. And a lot of students do start at LaGuardia and, and, and go to, you know, well, you, you became an engineer, but they go all over CUNY. And I, you know, I don't even know, Brian, that people realize that CUNY has 25 uh, campuses and 25 schools, you know, eight, uh, seven community colleges, uh, 11 senior colleges and seven professional schools. I also had the privilege in 2002 of being asked to to uh, found a school for adults called the CUNY School of Professional Studies by Chancellor Goldstein and was able to put together a team that within months had, had begun this, the school. The school now has over 4,000 degree students and serves 30,000 non-credit students. And, and I, I, I would wanna just add, I know we don't have, have that much time, that the whole question of, of the mission of CUNY to serve New York City was crucial to my thinking. And that that um, uh, you had mentioned 22 degree programs. Well, the School of Professional Studies developed about 28 degree programs and became mm. the first entity to do online degree programs for, for CUNY and, and, and for adult students. But we had huge undertakings in the K-12 area. We, we organized 20 early college high schools. We built three new specialized high schools uh, at the request of the mayor. 
we we uh, involved ourselves in in police work in the city. Uh, we started a school for out of school youth in in the Bronx called CUNY Prep. We brought culture, uh, theater, and and uh, music to kids uh, and things that you don't typically think a university does. And my view is that you can't have a great urban university, uh, public university. It doesn't pay attention to the to the the city that it resides in. And and we started with a staff of six. By 2006, we were at 350 staff, virtually all supported by grant and contract outside money. It didn't cost the university money to support our our staff who became leaders all over uh, CUNY and 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 certainly in the system office and then in, as well. And and so the question of a mission of a of a great uni urban university really to me you know has to do with not only degree programs but serving the city and trying to think you know creatively and higher ed is filled with 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 really smart people and yet they are resistant to change and and how do you get get past that and that was the task of some incredibly gifted educators that I worked with who typically would not even necessarily get faculty jobs, but were on soft money, were on grants and contracts. And 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 then, of course, you have a, a vision of a chancellor like Goldstein, who was there for 14 years uh, uh, to see that this happened. So let me let me stop and see if we take other questions. Janet in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Janet. Um, good morning. I'd like to ask your guest if you have um, you have a student who's really struggling to get through the CUNY system. Um, has what would you suggest for them yeah. to do? Yeah. Well, I I think that now there are both tutoring centers, there are advisors, uh, there are folks you can go to on each campus. To to try and 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 you know change that that equation. Uh, I don't know what campus that person is at, and and it's hard to to speak on it. Um, but not to be quiet about it. And then it's the role of CUNY to get early alerts to understand that this student is in trouble. This student's midterm grades are not so good, and that that it's it's our obligation to kind of figure out what we need to do to uh, to to assist. So, you know, I, I wish I knew more about the situation, but uh, uh, that's where I would start. Do you want to go one step okay, further, Janet? Okay, thank, thank you very much. Lisa in New Rochelle, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lisa. Oh, hi. I want to call in because I am from a low-income family, and I have a son who I tried to send to SUNY Buffalo uh, for an engineering degree, and he can't get even though we are very low income and he's a minority we can't get this excelsior scholarship that's supposed to be amazing because of just a little loophole um that he can't finish in four years because he had to transfer from another school and they and buffalo didn't accept any of his credits besides the fact that it was an accredited four-year college and so now they won't give him any money which is the whole reason we transferred because we couldn't pay for college anywhere outside of new york and and now we can't get the money that we deserve that it's 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 intended to be for families exactly like ours and we can't get any of it because 
of basically a little loophole that there's no reason Buffalo shouldn't have accepted Colorado's um, credits mm. um, for the aerospace engineering program. And now it's going to take him five years to finish because they, they took away a year from him and made him retake all the same classes. And then, um, and we have to pay full price. Um, which we can't afford. And so I'm just really frustrated that I thought, oh, my God, thank you, New York. This is going to be, you know, meet the needs of our family. And and now it doesn't help us at all. And, not, um, and that, of course, is SUNY, not CUNY. And you live in Westchester, New Rochelle, not not in the city. But uh, what's, is there a moral of that story based on your yeah. experience that you can take away or maybe even help Lisa and her kid? Yeah, well, I don't know that I can help Lisa. I really don't. I, I think that's complicated. But what I do know, Brian, is the whole question of transfer and credits accepted, and CUNY is now you know, doing some new things to make sure that that happens, is a huge issue and has been an issue for the last 30 or 40, 40 years. Um, and, uh, and, and so as, we, as CUNY has lost enrollment, the biggest pool of people in New York City and, and metropolitan New York are people who have some college and no degree. And the question is, will their credits be accepted or their work experience be accepted and my view is that if higher ed does not wake up to that, they have to do more on that side, um, not only shame on them, but the, the, the decrease in student enrollment will, will continue because the number of students coming in from the public schools, particularly in a, a system like New York, in which we have 150 or 175,000 less students in the system, which has an impact, the adult population is a population that we should bring back. Yes. And, and there's just not enough being done. So to her question about affordability and who's yes. falling through the cracks, yes. and Lisa, thank you for your call and good luck with you and your family. I mean, Bernie Sanders ran for president on free <laughs> public college for all. Yeah. Is yeah. that something you support or think would help CUNY and the students who could use well, it? I, I think it would help everybody. I will say that that and and you know whether it could ever get passed is another question but at cuny if you are you know at one of our community colleges the vast majority of students pay no tuition and 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 do not wind up with that because between the state uh, tuition uh, assistance program tap and the federal pell grant um large numbers of students do not now, some do, and some, you know, that are more middle class do. Excelsior is one answer, um, but CUNY students do not graduate with the kind of debt that are coming out of the private uh, schools. And, and, and so, uh, you know, I, in, a, in the best of all worlds, I would go back to pr when I started going to CUNY. Everything was free. Um, is that going to happen politically? Probably not. Um, but, you know, you know, it's not that I would be opposed to it. We're, we're just about at the end of our time, and I'm going to shorten our next segment a little bit just so I can get a few of these other folks in here. I did say when I was inviting calls that if anybody wanted to thank you <laughs> personally who came through uh, your classes or your deanship, they 
could call in with that. So we're going to keep these short. But Joe in Brooklyn, what do you want to say to Dean Mogulescu in 15 seconds? In 15 seconds, just thanks, John. Uh, this is uh, just an honor to have worked with you. You're a role model and a mentor. Your your two skill sets of always being dedicated to the students and the good of the students and, and bringing together a, a group of really great people. I was honored to serve on some of those groups, and I really appreciate all you've done. And also your uh, deftness at manipulating the often uh, complicated political situations at CUNY you left me awestruck many times, so thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. One more. Margie in Midwood, you're on WNYC. Margie, 15 seconds for you. Um, John was my social work student supervisor. He was the best. I worked with him at the Brooklyn House of Detention in 1980, 79, and 1980, oh. and I couldn't have asked for a better person. The best. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll read one one text message that came in. I'll read part of it. Uh, I'm a product of your guest's work. In the 2000s, I attended NYCCT. It wasn't easy as I was an immigrant with some language barriers, also a young single mother who struggled with mental health issues at the time. I quit college a couple of times because life was so overwhelming at the time, but I never forgot what made me come back was a letter from the dean stating that I was in good standing and they'd like me to come back. I felt cared for and came back both times. So with those testimonials, we leave it with John Mogulescu, whose new memoir about all the things we've been talking about and more is called The Dean of New Things, Bringing Change to CUNY and New York City. Dean Mogulescu, again, congratulations on your career and the book, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Alcohol overuse causes 140,000 American deaths annually, according to the National Institutes of Health. That's more than drug overdoses, guns, or car accidents. And while other substance use disorders are considered public health problems, the alcohol industry is only growing. It generated $260 billion in revenue in 2022, the last year for which stats were available. That's according to Park Street, an alcohol industry consulting service. For decades, alcohol use disorder has been seen as a type of moral failing, but new scientific consensus is forming around it being a brain disease. And as a brain disease, medical professionals have started to see a range in alcohol overuse treatments. Viewing it that way can be helpful in treating it, especially with medication. Doctors rarely prescribe these medications. However, only 2% of people 
with alcohol use disorder get medication for it, according to the stats that I've read. Joining us now to discuss her recent reporting on alcohol use disorder and how it can be treated with medication, including, yes, Ozempic, is Rachel DeRose, Editorial Production Coordinator at the Harvard Business Review. She's a former Vox Future Perfect Fellow, where she wrote an article titled, Alcohol Overuse Causes 140,000 American Deaths Annually. Why is it so undertreated? Rachel, welcome to WNYC. Thank you. Thank you for having me today to speak about this topic. And you write that alcohol is, quote, a psychoactive, addictive drug, one linked to over 50 fatal conditions and contributing to the death of 140,000 people in the U.S. annually. What has the research shown is linked to alcohol overuse? Alcohol overuse, as you just said, is linked to many, many conditions, um, primarily liver disease, cancers of the stomach and mouth, hypertension, stroke, heart disease, and even breast cancer. Uh, Women are actually at increased risk for heart damage and breast cancer, even from lower levels of drinking. And unfortunately, in recent years, the rate of alcohol-related deaths among women specifically is rising at a faster rate uh, compared to men in the U.S. And the National Institutes of Health defines light drinking as less than 15 drinks a week for men or eight drinks a week for women. And even that has been linked to certain types of diseases, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, As I just mentioned, women are more susceptible to certain diseases, even at lower consumption levels over uh, longer periods of time. Specifically, the risk of breast cancer goes up, some studies say, by 30 to 50 percent for women who moderately drink. Um, And also, outside of diseases, even light drinking impairs someone's judgment and perception. So incidents like falling or a car accident, if you choose to get behind the wheel, can also lead to harm from even light levels of drinking. And you write that while America treats other dangerous substances, such as opioids, as a public health problem, alcohol use is not treated similarly as a crisis legally, medically, or culturally. I imagine you don't want to go back to prohibition. So how do you think we should be looking at and regulating alcohol? Mm-hmm. So absolutely. We're not going back to prohibition. We know that doesn't work. But something that we do know works is taxes. Um, Alcohol taxes are a very effective public health intervention when it comes to reducing the harm from alcohol. Um, Herman Lopez, a reporter, a former reporter with Vox, who's now at The New York Times, wrote an article for Vox in 2018 arguing for increasing the tax of alcohol. Uh, At the time, Congress had effectively cut the tax by 16%. And over the last two decades, uh, the alcohol tax has reduced in value because of things like inflation. Um, And at the end of last year, even the World Health Organization came out and called on countries to increase their taxes on alcoholic beverages. And they cited a 2017 study that showed that taxes that increased alcohol prices by 50% could avert 21 million deaths over 50 years and generate $17 trillion in revenue. Um, So it's taxes, as well as just increasing awareness around AUD, awareness of what treatment options are out there so that people are comfortable disclosing if they have AUD, comfortable disclosing to their doctors and their community and getting that, that necessary treatment. Right. And what about cultural attitudes toward alcohol? How do you view Mm -hmm. them and how do you think they need to change, if at all? 
Mm -hmm. So culturally, alcohol is pretty ingrained in our society. Um, obviously, the laws vary a bit state by state, but you can find alcohol in gas stations and even in some places, drive throughs um, So while we've normalized alcohol, if we're going to normalize alcohol in the way we have, we also, as I, as I hinted at earlier, we need to normalize talking about when it becomes a problem, uh, when someone is experiencing AUD. Um, and one of the biggest issues we're facing when it comes to treatment is while it's normal now to go into a annual physical and be asked how many drinks do you have per week, you're not being asked what type of alcohol you're consuming. Um, and you're not really being asked the questions that are used as that criteria for diagnosing AUD uh, because not many physicians are trained in addiction medicine. Um, and so it's really about promoting and getting more, um, more awareness out there among the community, but also within the healthcare community as well. So that AUD is more easily diagnosable and more readily talked about and treated. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're talking about AUD, Alcohol Use Disorder, with Rachel DuRose, Editorial Production Coordinator at the Harvard Business Review. She wrote an article as a former Vox Future Perfect Fellow called Alcohol Overuse Causes 140,000 American Deaths Annually. Why is it so undertreated? And um, moving now into the part of the conversation where we're going to talk about some of these medications that you say are being underused, we're actually mm -hmm. going to take a phone call from Francis in Mount Vernon, who says they are an addiction psychiatrist and does sometimes prescribe one of these things. So, Francis, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling in. Yeah, hi, Brian. I'm actually a general psychiatrist, but I'm board certified in a couple specialties. I called in about Adderall about a month ago. Uh-huh, great. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to amplify the message today that not everyone, but a lot of patients, if I, I tell them that the two ones I use the most, which is uh, naltrexone and acamprosate, also known as Camprel, they're non-toxic, and it's, it doesn't help everyone, but it's certainly, certainly worth a try. I, I remember a big review article that came out a few years ago, surprised to me that there was actually no level of drinking that did not increase cancer risk. And um, so both people have a formal diagnosis of alcoholism. There's even a, there's even a uh, online, there's a guy started a company online to try to get people to take naltrexone. You know, it's like advertisements, people trying to mm -hmm. get them. Because there's very little to lose by trying this treatment. I have one person who uh, four years ago started taking both at the same time, and he instantly stopped drinking. He was about to lose his job as a contractor. And he, he, you know, he just praises me every three months when I mm. see him. And you're talking, his, uh, so you're talking about naltrexone, and the other one was called the Camprosate? The br old brand name is Camprol, C-A-M-P-R-A-L, and it's the, uh, the um, generic is A-Camprosate. Um, do you want to talk at all from your clinical experience about the mechanisms? How do these drugs... Yeah, have somebody so, stop drinking. Yeah, so now Traxone works a little bit like Shantix. You you take it in for pe for people who are genetically predisposed to get kind of a high or euphoric response from drinking. 
So this is a marginal effect. So it doesn't eliminate drinking altogether, but you just feel that you don't get as much out of it, so you uh-huh. don't drink as much. So obviously this doesn't work for everyone who's committed to getting a nice buzz. But if you can get, you know, to take the pill, you'll drink, you'll probably drink less. A camprosate, on the other hand, works in the brain's glutamate system. And the glutamate system is on overdrive when you're feeling withdrawal symptoms. So it takes the edge off of that craving. So they're both listed as anti-craving medicines and they're massively underprescribed. And, you know, we, we think that, you know, to medicalize the disorder, you would want more proper treatments and more people to know about it and seek proper treatment. Francis, thank so a you. lot of times it just helps people moderate. Yeah. Thank you very much for calling in uh, again with a very informative take, given your uh, professional relationship to substance use disorders. Anyone else want to call in um, with your personal story from you know any aspect of this or with a question for our guest, 212-433-WNYC, 212 Nine two, Rachel. What were you thinking, listening to Doctor Francis there? I think it sounded a lot like uh, everything I was hearing from the experts I spoke to when I was working on my article. Um, all of the all of the doctors I spoke to while writing it were just surprised and disappointed at how underprescribed these medications still are. They also did want to emphasize that these medications are not a silver bullet um, alone they are not as effective in treating someone as when you combine the medication with either social support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or with traditional forms of therapy. Um, Really, when addressing AUD, most of the experts I spoke to emphasized uh, this approach of pulling in different parts of treatment and finding a treatment path that works for the individual. Yeah. Another doctor told us off the air that she would never prescribe meds for alcohol uh, use disorder because, or almost never, that they are for only the most severe alcohol abuse cases, and these drugs are tough on the liver. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that from your research. Mm -hmm. Well, there is some research showing that uh, some of these, these drugs are hard on the liver, The experts I spoke to emphasized that alcohol is also hard on the liver. And as the person who uh, wrote and said, um, because alcohol is, it's used in only the most extreme cases, these medications oftentimes. And so in the most extreme cases, um, the people being prescribed this, uh, you know, are possibly already causing damage to their liver, liver through their alcohol consumption. Additionally, some of the research I found showed that the risk of, of this liver damage was minimal. Um, and also, most of these medications are prescribed for short periods of, of time, um, six months at a time, for example. And really, it's the chronic use of these medications that seems to result in the liver damage from what I found. Here's another addiction medicine doc calling in, Lippy in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Lippy. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on. So for the past decade, I've had the honor of caring for uh, patients with various substance use disorders, including alcohol use disorder. And look, it's at the end of the day, it's a tough 
condition. It's a tough disease to treat. Um, but the good news is, is that studies show that most people who are connected to the appropriate treatment and care get better. But the problem we're facing, and Rachel has clearly seen this in her research, is that most people don't get, don't access care, and a large barrier to that is stigma. Stigma towards people who have an alcohol uh, problem, and uh, and people still so associate it as a moral failing or a moral weakness. That's part of it. And the other problem is that most people, again, Rachel pointed this out, most healthcare professionals, doctors like me, do not learn about addiction in their medical training. Mm-hmm. I learned about it on the job when I became an addiction medicine boarded physician when uh, my primary care patients in Boston, Boston's homeless population, the leading cause of death was drug overdose. So yeah, opioids certainly is getting a lot of attention, but alcohol actually kills more people than opioids, opioids do. And medication really do help. I know somebody else mentioned that they uh, avoid uh, prescribing naltrexone or medications because of the damage to the liver. Yes, some of these medications can have liver toxicity. However, again, as Rachel pointed out, alcohol is far, far more harmful. And naltrexone, which is perhaps one of the best of the medications actually can be very effective. You just have to have that um, uh, um, you know, examination with the doctor to look at your liver, liver um, tests, liver function tests, and then go from there. But I agree, medications along with counseling, behavioral therapies, and strong support can really make a difference and help people achieve long-term recovery. Doctor, I'm curious if you've considered Ozempic for this because it's been in the news as something that can also block addictive behaviors. I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Ryan. A lot of people are asking about Ozempic. Here's the short answer to that. I think there, we need a lot more research to look at this. Um, I, I'm all for all possible treatments and treatment options. Uh, it's, it could be considered off-label use for now, because as you know, Ozempic right now is for patients with diabetes and obesity. However, there is some um, promising uh, outcomes possibly for Ozempic in the use of uh, addictive uh, disorders. I just think we need a little bit more research targeted to individuals who have a substance use disorder, but I think there's promise in there. I just would not use it until um, we have a little bit more data on that, Brian. Thank you so much for calling in and all that context. Uh, Dr. Lippi from Manhattan. Rachel, what were you thinking as you were listening to her? And I think your article does touch on Ozempic also, right? Mm-hmm. It does mention Ozempic, and I'm glad uh, you brought it up now because something I wanted to mention is that most of the professionals I spoke to, while they're hopeful for the idea that there could be more medicines, including Ozempic, that could treat AUD, uh, they also wanted to emphasize that we have three FDA-approved existing medicines that do seem to work. And really the first hurdle and the hurdle that we should be addressing at the moment is getting people more access to these medications, getting greater access to other treatment methods, um, and investing in those in those systems that already exist, those medicines that already exist, uh, before trying to use something that hasn't been tested as thoroughly to try to treat this disorder. Michelle in South Carolina, you're on WNYC. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Um, I am a 58-year-old female married with a 12-year-old. I'm educated, I'm fit, um, and I have alcohol use disorder. It's, it's pretty severe. I have wanted to stop for years, and I've tried for years. I'm self-medicating with an abuse right now. 
Um, I haven't had a drink for seven days, um, but I have been in this predicament many, many times before. And if I don't take it every day, I and two days go by, I will slip back into the old habit. I I can go about five days before the medication starts to wear off. Some people it's longer, like two weeks. Um, Does Anabuse a, a different medication than the ones we've been talking about? Y- yes. Did Did you want to ask? your guest about it, they could probably uh, explain it better than I can. Uh, yeah, I'll do that. But Michelle, I think I think you're wanting to make a point about your experience and what others can learn from it. Is that right? Um, I'm not sure what, what my point is. I, I guess so. I, I've never told anyone this except for my best friend. My, my husband knows, but um, we've never, ever talked about it. It's kind of at the point now where it's almost breaking up our marriage. We've been together Mm. 22 years. And and it goes um, back a little bit to what the previous caller, the doctor, was saying, perhaps, that stigma is one of the biggest problems preventing people from getting treatment. 100%. Otherwise, I would have gone to rehab before. Um, I've never told any of my doctors. I'm taking other medication for depression, and I've been taking that for 25 years. But the stigma, especially around um, a female having AUD, uh, it's so shameful. And it's true what the previous guest was saying about that, that you are looked at as moral, that you have moral failings, that uh, it's so different. And I have thought that. I think that about myself. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. recently, I still don't believe it, that it's a disease. And I, I've been watching some uh, YouTubes in the last week or so um, because I'm trying so hard this time. But like I said, I'm 58. I've been trying this to quit mm-hmm. since I was probably 20. Michelle, thank you for your openness on this. I think it's really helpful to other listeners that you called in and have been as as open and articulate about it as you have. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, by the way, I see that Anabuse is, I guess, the commercial name for another drug that you also write about in your article, Rachel Disulfram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was actually the first FDA-approved drug, if I'm not mistaken. Um, most of the experts I spoke to said it was a second-line option because uh, the way it works is it makes someone feel ill if they drink alcohol. And um, for those who are really struggling, um, they'll sometimes go off the medication because they decide, I want to be able to drink. Um, And uh, their disorder is really preventing them from staying on the medication. Um, And I I, I also want to thank the last caller for sharing their story. I think we keep emphasizing the need to end the stigma around the idea that alcohol overuse is a choice. And one of the best ways to do that is by talking openly about it and um, being able to share and speak about having the disorder like we would with any other disorder or disease. Indeed. And I think I misheard her on the 
name of the medication she's taking, so I'll say it correctly now, antabuse, not the way I said it in the in the previous comment. Delilah in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Delilah. Hi, Brian. I've called many times, listened to you every single day. Um, I um, have a long, it's a, a decent history of alcoholism in my family. My father died of um, some alcohol-related issues, and I, from a very young age, had alcohol use disorder. Um, I was a binge drinker um, and I would, you know, it would cause me health problems and I would just like, you know, do stupid stuff. I was never one of those people that drank every day, but I, I, I tried so many times to quit. I went to outpatient rehab. I went to detox, um, tried so many different things and I would always just fall back into honestly just social pressure. Like you go to a wedding mm-hmm. and they have a, a, a tray of champagne, like it's really hard when something is everywhere and everyone's right. doing it. To, so I would be like, okay, I'm not going to drink at this wedding. And then, you know, a half an hour in, it's like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to have a drink. And then the next thing you know, you're drunk. So I was prescribed disulfiram and abuse. Um, and I, I swear, I think it saved my life. I think it was the only possible way that I could have stopped drinking at the time I did. It, I took it as a pill, so I, I did sometimes, like, not take it and pretend I did so that I could secretly drink at an event, huh. or sometimes I would take it and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to make myself throw up, but then I would just, like, have to mental through that and keep it down. Once it's in your body, you can't drink for a couple of days, and it's very freeing. It's like, okay, you know what? I took that pill this morning. I simply can't drink at this wedding. I can't give in. However you can choose to not take the pill. That's the problem. I have a friend who recently got a shot of disulfiram, so he can't drink for three months. And I think I would have benefited greatly from that. One thing I want to say is because of the way I look, I've always held a job. Um, I had so many doctors over the years in New York City say things to me like, you can't be an alcoholic. Oh, no, no, no. You can't possibly need an abuse. That's for like really bad. And I'd be like, no, I want it. Like I do need it. I will drink if I don't have this pill. Like don't look at me and judge and say, oh, no, you can do it. Right. No, I'm telling you, you I can't. I need yeah. a pill. Because you look like I will. I, all yeah. my, my best intentions, I will still pick up that drink at the wedding. My best intentions to not drink at that wedding or at that party, if I don't have this pill in me, I will give in and drink when I see everyone else drinking. Delilah, so thank you. So that's how I believe saved my life. Thank you so much. Another really helpful story for other people to hear. And again, we appreciate your candor opening up about something that's probably really difficult for you to talk about. We're just about out of time in the segment, Rachel. And I guess as a closing point and relating to the last two amazing callers who we had, a big part of your article or a big point of your article is that many more people could be getting these treatments that seem effective for our callers. And that's kind of the, the nub of this, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and there's many reasons people aren't being treated. Some of it is the stigma uh from the community, from individuals who are suffering from AUD, not wanting to uh, admit that they're suffering and get that treatment. And the other part is what we touched on, which is the lack of awareness, particularly within the medical community. Of the 940,000 physicians in the U.S., approximately 3,000 specialize in addiction medicine, according to a study by the Association of American Medical Colleges. 
And so there's uh, this hurdle that we need to overcome. There's awareness both of the disorder itself and the treatment options that needs to uh, be elevated both to the public and within the medical community. Rachel DeRose, now Editorial Production Coordinator at the Harvard Business Review, formerly a Vox Future Perfect Fellow, where she wrote the article we've been discussing titled Alcohol Overuse Causes 140,000 American Deaths Annually. Why is it so undertreated? Thank you so much for coming on and prompting uh, amazing calls from our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC, where there's always a conversation 24-7.